0: Hello, Salam Diyagwit, and welcome to the History of Modern Iran podcast, episode 11, The Great Persian Famine. In August 1871, a San Francisco preacher received a letter from a Christian convert in Iran. The letter read, quote, Peace be unto you, my brother. Our country is now suffering the direst calamity. Our mothers and fathers are eating their children. Our husbands are doing the same with their wives. Grown-up children are killing their brothers and sisters and, in some instances, their mothers and fathers for food. Food, food is all the cry. End quote. During the winter of eighteen seventy to seventy one, almost no rain fell on the Iranian plateau. The following year, precipitation was again low. Most Iranian agriculture south of the Alborz Mountains relied on the ancient system of Ganats, underground canal systems that channel water from the high mountains to lowland areas. Between 1869 and 1872, the Ganats ran dry, and the riverbeds remained empty, cracked and parched. Harvests failed across much of Persia. Droughts, food shortages and localised famines were nothing new in Iran. In the 19th century alone, we have evidence of famines in Kashan and Esfahan in 1810, in Gilan in 1824, and across much of south-central Iran and in the Caspian provinces in the early 1830s. As recently as 1860, the wealthy provinces of Azerbaijan and Mazandaran had been afflicted by the twin evils of cholera and starvation. In fact, scarcely a year went by without serious food shortages in at least one area of the country. What set the Great Persian Famine of 1870-72 apart from these previous catastrophes was its scale and severity. The first people to be hit by the drought conditions in 1870 were the pastoralist Tribes, who found their usual grazing lands parched and barren. Entire herds perished for want of sustenance. These pastoralist nomads began arriving in the villages as refugees or as raiders. Desperate Arab tribesmen from Fars, for example, were only able to replenish their devastated herds by raiding 30,000 sheep and 10,000 mule and cattle from the region of Shahre Babak. Nomads who lacked sufficient strength and arms to undertake such raids had no choice but to throw themselves on the mercy of the settled population. The British traveller, Oliver St. John, described how the poor nomads, quote, either lay down and died or made their way to the towns and villages, prolonging their miserable existence with roots and herbs or with the carcasses of the dead animals, which were unusually numerous on the great highways, end quote. At this stage, the drought had not yet begun to affect settled agriculturalists. St. John remembered that in early 1870, he and his delegation were able to provide refugee nomads with reasonably priced rice from the villages. By late spring, though, as crops withered in the fields, it became clear that the towns and cities of Iran would not escape the oncoming catastrophe. In times of famine, People do not usually die because of a complete unavailability of food, but because of price inflation. Scarcity causes food prices to increase. These high prices then place staple foodstuffs beyond the reach of people on the lower end of the income distribution, leading to inadequate food intake, malnourishment and hunger. It is not primarily starvation that kills during a famine, but disease. Underfed, malnourished people have weakened immune systems that render them easy prey to infection, leading to epidemics like typhus, cholera and similar afflictions. When people suddenly start fleeing areas of scarcity and moving en masse, as occurred in Iran, disease also spreads more easily due to increased contact. The combination of these two phenomena, in 1870 to 72 contributed to the high mortality that afflicted the country. The effects of increased food prices began to be felt in mid to late 1870. Cities like Esfahan were mainly reliant on food imports from elsewhere in the country and as such were especially vulnerable to price instability. When crops started to fail, in grain-producing areas, the increase in prices, essentially the scarcity-increased general price plus high transportation costs, began to place daily essentials beyond the means of local labourers, artisans, and poorer bazaaris. In the cities of Esfahan, Tehran, and Boucher, the price of bread doubled or trebled within a few short months. The average 19th century Iranian family consumed about two kharvars, or 600 kilograms, of wheat in a single year, while the average annual income was about 20 tomans. By 1871, the price of wheat in Kashan had increased to the point where a single kharvar now cost 100 tomans, 20 times its pre-famine price. Perhaps as much as 50% of Iranians lacked emergency food stocks and had no safeguards against shortages. When their income proved insufficient to acquire bread, they simply did not eat. Inflated food prices sent the urban economy into a recession. The normally bustling bazaars became eerily quiet as artisans and small craftsmen could not find customers for their products, increasing unemployment and creating a negative feedback loop that worsened an already dire situation. Desperation led to violence and banditry. The roads became treacherous as nomads and bandits preyed on travellers and famished internal refugees. The winter of 1871 was a mixed blessing. It was one of the coldest ever experienced in the country, with sub-zero temperatures and high levels of snowfall. While the snow meant that the ganats and riverbeds would once again be full of water after the spring thaws, the severe temperatures killed off thousands of Iranians already weakened by starvation and disease. Finally, in 1872, successful harvests reduced food prices back to their pre-famine levels. The effect of the famine on ordinary Iranians was devastating. The total number of famine deaths is difficult to ascertain due to the relative paucity of data. Over the years, estimates have ranged from a low of 300,000 to as high as 3 million. The most modern and up-to-date scholarly estimates by Gilbert and Adamiyat, respectively, placed a mortality rate at between 1.5 and 2 million people. Even taking the lower of these two estimates, that would represent between a fifth and a quarter of the then population of Iran. Between 1867 and 1874, Goms' population nearly halved from 25,000 to 14,000. Sabzevar's population fell by two-thirds, while those of Yazd and Esfahan dropped by at least a third. In all these cases, the population losses were a result of both mortality and migration in search of food. Shoko Okazaki, on whose research I am relying heavily, described the horrors of the famine in terms which Echo reports from besieged Leningrad in the Second World War. Quote, Those who could not afford bread ate dogs, cats, rats and other animals, even grass. The situation gave rise to reports of cannibalism. Muslims were even said to have eaten the dead bodies of Jews. Corpses were disinterred from graveyards to be eaten and some even went so far as to abduct children for the same purpose. In Com, no one dared walk the streets, for ruffians on the outskirts were said to lure women who came there in search of food by pretending to have a meal ready for them, only to kill and eat them. There were even reported cases of parents killing and eating their own children. End quote. Contemporary accounts testify to the gravity of the crisis. William Brittlebank, a British traveller, arrived in Boucher in the spring of 1870, where he saw, in his own words, quote, a whole people perishing for want of food. End quote. Among the horrors he witnessed were three children quote, so reduced to want you could see the bones in their little bodies. End quote and surrounded by a black swarm of flies. On his first day in the city, he encountered a woman reduced to begging, so malnourished that she could not stand and was forced to drag herself along by her hands. Other women were so emaciated that their breasts, quote, hung like pieces of parchment, end quote, from their bodies, and they often simply threw them over their shoulders, as if they were scarves. James Bassett, a Presbyterian missionary, visited the town of Zanjan in 1872 and was shocked by the devastation he encountered there. He estimated that 60 deaths per day were occurring and observed piles of uncovered corpses left outside the overflowing graveyards. He was told that some 5,000 locals had perished in the preceding nine months. Another British visitor, touring Khorasan a few years after the famine, noted that in many villages there was a complete and striking absence of young children. In Mashhad, starving citizens allowed themselves to be captured by Turkoman slavers, rather than starve to death. The root cause of the Great Persian Famine was a two-year period of severe and widespread drought. But this fact, in and of itself, is not sufficient to explain the degree of mortality. As the great economist and philosopher Amartya Sen writes, Even in those cases in which a famine is accompanied by a reduction in the amount of food available per head, the causal mechanism precipitating starvation has to bring in many variables other than the general availability of food. End quote. Explaining these variables in the case of the Great Persian Famine is difficult. We are hamstrung by a lack of data. For example, the absence of reliable and consistent records means that we do not know for certain what land was owned by whom, and we are not always clear who was responsible for things like the maintenance of irrigation works in a given area. Related to this is a relative paucity of academic analysis. Indeed, the amount of scholarship on the Great Persian Famine, both in English and Persian, pales in comparison to the amount produced in relation to comparable food crises like the Great Irish Famine of the 1840s or the Bengal Famine of 1943. There are still, however, a number of non-natural factors that we can look at. The first of these relates to the underlying infrastructural problems of the Gajar state. Let's take transport infrastructure. In a modern age of refrigerators, containerization, and global supply chains, we can find it hard to appreciate just how much more difficult and expensive it was to transport food in pre-modern economies. Imagine you and I live on opposite sides of a high range of mountains. In my village, where we have had an unsatisfactory but far from abysmal harvest, we have just enough for everyone to eat and a small surplus to trade for a higher than usual profit because of the food shortages occurring elsewhere. Your village, on the other side of the mountains, did not fare so well, experiencing a complete crop failure And the early signs of famine. GC Napier's account of Khorasan suggests that this was a common occurrence in Iran, with some villages and regions decimated by the drought of the 1870s, while others were barely affected. Hearing about the dearth of food in your village, we prepare to send some merchants to sell our produce, which is already more expensive than usual because of reduced supply. If there were good roads and highways between our two villages, we would be able to supply our starving neighbours with relative ease. However, all we have are barely maintained roads, which, in places, are mere goat paths. Getting our food to your market is an ordeal, even though we know we're going to get a good price when we finally get there. So we buy mules, the only animal suited for the crossing. Unfortunately, high demand and mortality among livestock means that purchasing or renting these mules costs a small fortune. We also have to hire on extra labour because of the difficulty of the journey. By the time our wheat and dates reach your village, the price has skyrocketed. The increase is not just because of the increased demand, but also the cost of extra labour and the renting of mules and muleteers at abnormally high prices. When we sell our produce in your market, the prices are so inflated that only the wealthiest of your villagers could buy our goods in any significant quantity. Moreover, these wealthy villagers buy more than they need, storing excess grain against the possibility of continued food shortages. As for people in the next village over, they either starve or arrive in our valley as famished beggars. Such was the case in Iran, where the archaic transportation links between different parts of the country worsened the already harsh impact of food shortages. In a more closely connected land where moving goods from one region to another was cheap and easy, the increases in food prices would have been less severe. Markets in the worst affected regions and in those areas where there was less food scarcity would have been more integrated and prices could have approached some sort of equilibrium. Moreover, food imports could have been acquired at less expensive rates, all of which would have lowered prices and consequently mortality. To take just one example, High-quality flour was available in abundance in the Russian port of Baku on the Caspian Sea and could be shipped to Iranian ports at a relatively low cost. However, according to one British official, these grain imports might as well have been left to sit on the shore, for there is nothing that can be called a road through any of the provinces on the Persian Caspian and no means of transporting goods except in fine weather, and under the most favourable circumstances." The already high transportation costs were exacerbated by mass mortality among draft animals, which caused mule hire prices to increase fivefold. It's estimated that in the Roman Empire, with its straight roads and frequent way stations, the price of grain doubled for every 100 miles it travelled in Gajar-Iran, whose roads were usually too poor to even sustain wheeled vehicles, such jumps in prices were even more dramatic. The result was that desperate Iranians, who were unable to acquire food locally, had to instead migrate en masse to less affected regions. The rice-growing province of Gilan, for example, which was relatively unaffected by the drought, saw twenty to 30,000 refugees added to its indigenous population of 100,000 during the years of the famine. Beyond the important issue of transportation, there were also underlying problems with agricultural productivity. As I've mentioned before, Iran south of the Alborz is a mostly dry, arid country. For hundreds of years though, otherwise infertile areas of the country have been rendered inhabitable by Ganats. Ganats have the same root as the English word canal. They're essentially underground aqueducts which carry water from the mountains down to the plateau where they emerge on the surface as irrigation canals. Granats are an amazing feat of engineering and their use has been central to the development of Iranian civilization. However, the flip side of these underground lifelines is that they require constant and specialised maintenance in order to function effectively. One observer wrote that as soon as ganats decay, quote, the tillable ground ceases to bear fruit, the fields are caught up in the desert again, and the village drifts along more dead than alive. Finally, leaving a water supply hardly sufficient to... For the private gardens of the ruling family, the villagers move away, going to the city to pick up a precarious living, or making a new start in life by joining themselves to other villages. Throughout most of the 19th century, neither landlords nor government appear to have done much to maintain or expand irrigation, which limited agricultural productivity. Moreover, insecurity of land ownership and tenure, the sharecropping system, high interest rates, and overtaxation of the peasantry all combined to disincentivize private sector investment in water infrastructure. The result was that food productivity remained low and contributed to the recurrent subsistence crises that plagued Iran, the Great Famine included. One of the more controversial aspects of the famine has been the extent to which the introduction of cash crops affected grain supplies. Since Nasser al-Din Shah's coronation in 1848, Iran had become much more closely integrated into the world market. As new foreign markets became accessible, it became more desirable to shift production from grains to export commodities like opium and cotton. That there was a significant increase in cash crop production is not in dispute. In Yazd, for example, production of opium quadrupled between 1849 and 1870. Whether or not these new cash crops contributed to the famine by squeezing out grain production is much debated. Ahmad Saif argues strongly that underinvestment and cash crops were the primary causes of the Great Famine. He supports this conclusion mostly with quotations, especially from British observers, who were highly critical of the turn towards cash crop production. He cites the British consul E. H. Ross, who, writing just after the end of the famine, observed that, quote, "...the attempts of the natives to enrich themselves by cultivation and growth of a profitable article of trade opium, and their neglect to provide for the necessaries of life, combined with drought and other circumstances, resulted in the famine of 1871-72. The costly experience then gained has made the Persians more careful and provident, and they are now using a limited space for the cultivation of opium." Such quotations represent indicative and important evidence, but their value is limited. The study of famines is as much the preserve of the economist as the historian, and requires hard, quantitative data for serious analysis. To know the degree to which cash crops affected food supplies, we would need to know how much land was committed to cash crop cultivation, how productive it was, and whether opium and cotton production was balanced out by an increase in the total land under cultivation, or in agricultural productivity more generally. Even Safe says that it is impossible to say for sure whether the amount of land under food cultivation declined or not, given the lack of information we have on the contemporary economy. The opinions of observers like Ross is important, but far from definitive. Okazaki argues strongly against the claim that cash crop cultivation was an important factor in the famine. He insists that while cash crop production did increase, it did not have a major impact on the amount of land given over to grain production. Okazaki's argument is largely based on estimates. For example, he takes the total cotton exports for Iran for the years 1864 to 65, assumes a yield of 1 tonne per acre based on typical yields from nearly a century later, and then uses these figures to come to an average cotton acreage of 14.7 hectares. He then uses a similar arithmetic to estimate low average acreages for opium. This methodology is highly approximate not least because the one-tonne yield for cotton he cites is based on much later data and doesn't account for productivity increases in the interim. Personally, I would be hesitant to draw too many conclusions from such rough figures and estimates. None of this is to criticise Okazaki, who is merely making use of the limited available data And the argument is strong enough to raise reasonable doubts that cash crop cultivation was indeed a major cause of the famine. However, the estimates he cites are by no means compelling enough to eliminate cash crop cultivation as a major factor in the Iranian famine. My own feeling is that agricultural productivity in Iran was so low that giving over even a small amount of arable land to cash crops was probably enough to have had a significant inflationary effect on grain prices. Though again, this is merely intuition based on a limited evidence base. Rather than focusing on cash crops, Okazaki instead argues that hoarding and other forms of market manipulation were primarily responsible for the crisis. There is no doubt that such forms of market manipulation were a common occurrence in 19th-century Iran. As grain became increasingly commodified, a divide grew between the majority of the population who had to buy grain weekly or monthly to sustain themselves, and a minority who could acquire and store grain beyond their immediate needs. When grain prices fluctuated, elites often sought to benefit from price changes by withholding their grain from the market until prices peaked. Ranin Kazimi cites one Persian diplomat who observed that the wealthy, quote, were the primary agents responsible for the creation of artificial inflation. For before scarcity of wheat and bread was in any way discernible, these individuals managed to purchase all the wheat and stored it in their silos. So that they could sell it at an appropriate time, at a higher price. End quote. We should be cautious here. In times of food scarcity, accusations of hoarding and speculation are common but not always accurate. On the one hand, we do know of cases like the governor of Tehran, who in 1900 prohibited grain imports to the city to maintain artificially high prices following a good harvest. Unsurprisingly, he himself had a vested interest in the grain trade. However, there were also many cases of bakers being scapegoated for food shortages, even though they were nowhere near wealthy or connected enough to have had a significant impact on prices. Hoarding and speculation undoubtedly occurred. European observers who reported on the process had close links with local elites, and their complaints about hoarding and speculation were at least partially based on personal familiarity with the practices. Moreover, rumours of hoarding were often based on the testimony of servants and others who had direct knowledge of full silos and hidden grain caches on the estates of their employers. The problem for the historian is how to separate the scapegoats from the real villains, and to distinguish genuine cases of hoarding from rumours in the midst of a crisis. The simple fact is we don't have enough evidence of how much grain was being hidden away in silos to determine the extent to which it affected food prices and consequently famine mortality. What then of the government response? By almost any measure, the actions taken by the Gajar state during the crisis fell far short of the necessary intervention. What limited measures the government did implement, such as a ban on grain exports, were poorly carried out and, given the geographical variance of famine severity, may have had only limited efficacy even if they had been executed properly. Other measures such as direct famine relief, did not appear to have been implemented outside of Tehran. One could contend that the weaknesses of the Gajar state limited its ability to provide concrete relief through soup kitchens or directly buying and distributing grain, measures which were effective in curbing mortality rates and similar famines. It is true that the Shah's government was permanently cash-strapped and had limited ability to intervene in the provinces. However, the regime was able to gather enough money to finance an expensive royal tour of Europe just one year after the famine reached its conclusion. The rudimentary Gajar state, for all its failings, was able to gather and spend revenue when it served the desires of the monarch. That the government largely abdicated responsibility for famine relief is evidenced by the fact that official responses usually only emerged after bread riots threatened instability in major cities. Even if the Gajar government's ability to respond to the famine was limited by its own weaknesses, it still could have done substantially more to curb the almost unimaginable horrors that afflicted the country during the years 1870-72. to 72. In the wake of the Great Famine, Iran's agricultural productivity gradually improved and subsequently the country's population rose, growing from a low of circa 5 million in 1800 to about 10 million by the outbreak of the First World War. The Great Iranian Famine of the 1870s would, tragically, not be the last time that starvation decimated the people of Persia. In 1917, famine would again devastate the country. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcasting app you use. You can follow on Twitter at modern underscore Iran or send an email directly to historyofmoderniranpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye. Slawn, Godavas.